on this computer. Okay, cool. Ooh, that's scary. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> the voice of AI taking over. I feel like that's what it's going to sound like. Yeah, I felt like I was in trouble there. Uh, well, uh, welcome to the Real Driving Man podcast. Um, do you want to just do like your own self-introduction? I'm not going to give you any guidelines. Just kind of tell our few listeners who you are. Sure. Uh, ben Daly. I'm a fellow comic here in the Denver scene. Uh I, uh, shoot. What else do you want? You want the, anything Are else? Are you from Denver? Sure. Just from Virginia. Oh, Virginia. What brought you out here? Uh, yeah. came out here for a job. Um, initially everybody, it's funny. Everybody asks, they go, Oh, did you come out here for, for the weed? I say, no, I just got a job that happened to be out here. So yeah. Heck yeah. And so how long have you been in Denver now? Five years. So entirely, have you done comedy entirely in Denver? Or did you do some in Virginia and then come over here? Entirely in uh, in Colorado. Yeah, started pretty much as soon as I came out here. So, and so were you, that must have been like 2019. And then during the pandemic, I, I so I started April 2021 right after the pandemic and started things started to open up. What about you? How, how, how was that pandemic time? Yeah. I mean, I started a little bit before I started uh day after Christmas, 2018. So I got a year and three months or so in before things shut down. Uh, pandemic, I mean, it was similar to most people. It was a lot of sitting in my apartment and twiddling my thumbs, watching YouTube, playing video games, trying not to go crazy. Uh, but things, I mean, there's, there were some outdoor shows that kind of popped up and mics and there were a handful of things that uh, I guess gave the ability to us here in the Denver scene to do some basic stuff, but yeah, things were pretty shut down until early to mid 2021. Yeah, it was, um, it is so interesting how everybody's time is, is pretty similar, but then there's like those weird things like that drove me to comedy. Cause I was so sick of being inside doing homework. I hate for a degree I didn't really want. Um, but Anyway, Is that what, what you were just looking for anything to get out of homework? Uh, well, honestly, it was so I was always a kid who had a really natural ability to just I don't like calling myself smart. I think that's I don't know a little bright, but I was able to do very a lot a lot of mathematics particularly well and. Mathematics is usually not a discipline that you just emphasize in unless you're going to spend your whole time in academia. Usually you have to pair it with something and I wanted to be everything starting out as a I wanted to be an animator and then I wanted to be an electrical engineer and eventually I had to just pick something. And so I computer science for a long time was considered like mathematics and I just chose that and I mean it's not that I hated it I could find satisfaction in it but it wasn't like like when I first did my first open mic, it was like, this is it. It was almost religious about this is what you're supposed to be doing. Figure out how you need to do that. And especially after, I mean, that that early 2021 semester, I was stuck inside. I did 14 hours of homework a day and worked out twice a day. I was perfectly healthy and I was just so miserable. And the only thing I would do to feel better was I'd roll like, I kid you not, three and a half gram blunts, smoke them all and just watch stand-up specials. Okay. <laughs> and, and so when I came out, I remember Epic was the first one I did. And uh, I remember when I was in the car, I was sitting out there. I was like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But it was the mainly Joe Rogan's podcast and him talking about what it was like to hang out with comics. And then that first mic, it was, I mean, the hang with comics, it's almost impossible to beat. Did you go to mics before uh, to watch or did you, was that your first mic you went to and also did the mic? I I think the week before I'd went to a South Club show at Com Comedy Works South Club, and I I'd, I'd never even seen I mean I've seen specials, but I'd never seen a stand up show in person. And I think I met uh, one of the openers um, after the show, and I was like, I'm looking at doing it, and he said fifty two eighty comedy, and that's kind of what uh, I guess got me in. I, I don't nice. want to just talk about me because I, I tend to will not stop after if I do. One thing I wanted to ask ask you, and I think I've asked you it before in our own conversations, but you have a clean – you're clean comedy, and it is very – when I see you do it, it's you. I think sometimes people try to force either cleaned or whatever, something, a mask on them. Did you start out 
you know, just like everyone else figuring it out and decide to go clean? How did that evolve? Yeah. So, uh, I, I think you're right. I think just naturally who I am in my upbringing and kind of a Christian conservative family, um, it was a lot more natural to me. I mean, the way that I act around comics and friends, college buddies, things like that is certainly not like clean, straight edge. I'm not, no, a, no, not at all. I'm not somebody who's like turning my head and upset at people if they're saying whatever. I, I really don't care. But I think, yeah, growing up in that environment, I, I very much was in a strict environment that didn't, I wasn't allowed to curse or do a lot of stuff. Um, <laughs> So it, it came a lot more naturally to me. I mean, I mean, I I say that, and it sounds like I was like, oh, I'm ready to bust out of my shell. But me naturally, I'm not too crazy in a lot of uh, whether it's comedy or anything. I'm kind of just a normal. You are so, person. It's why I want to bring it up because I I've come and you know hang out with you at Mike's, and it's not like I gotta sit next to Ben. He's the clean comic. It's not like that at all. You're just like. I don't think clean comedians are in this category where they're, well, you know, they're this and then we're over here. They intermingle. Um, but in your art form, it was very, I tell people, cause you know, comedy works does the December, the clean month. And I've, I've never been able to fit in that. Not cause I do have a couple clean jokes, but I think you just kind of write jokes. It's you. So if, I think you got to figure out who that is and, you know, being clean is always a challenge. Yeah, and a, and a huge part, just to give you kind of the timeline of of how I got to where I'm at, I guess. I didn't start out clean, um, and it wasn't necessarily because I was trying to be not clean versus clean or anything. I just, I my first year plus, I didn't know what I was, I was figuring it out, as a lot of us are. I didn't know how to write jokes. I was just saying kind of terrible, horrible things <laughs> to try to get a reaction. I mean, you know, that's kind of a bad habit that a lot of us learn at open mics in the beginning. And it wasn't until things opened back up um, from the pandemic that we started doing shows uh, more in the suburbs or things that started up uh, opening up first. And I realized that was a, a moment that I realized there were a lot more families and not comedy fans. It's like you're coming into somebody else's territory, like a coffee shop or something. And I realized I don't want to make these people upset and so that changed gears a little bit and then also too just wanting to uh you know nate bargatze dusty slate there's a bunch of people that i look up to and respect that are clean-ish clean or clean-ish comics and uh i really wanted to be able to to get better at comedy and to be able to share my comedy with my family and i knew if i'm just doing saying crazy stuff then that's not something i would want to share and it's not something my parents would want to see and it's not because i'm still like oh my parents oh man, i'm in my 30s i have no qualms about being who i am but also i think all of us want to share our art or whatever you want to call it our hobbies whether it's comedy or not with our loved ones and uh you know if if i know that doing something in a vulgar manner is going to offend most of my loved ones. It's like, well, maybe I'll just try to do not that. And uh, that looking at it through that lens helped me get better at actually understanding how to write a joke. Because in the past, like I said, I was just kind of saying some crazy weird thing to get a laugh versus actually writing a joke and understanding the structure of a joke and uh, kind of going through that process helped me learn and get a lot better at writing in general. I love what you, uh, that, and this is not me being, that was, that's super sweet. Like wanting to perform for your parents. Cause my dad is definitely, my mom's everywhere, but my dad's kind of a more traditional clean guy. He loves clean comedians. And I like Gabriel Iglesias is one of the first standups. I think the first standup special I ever watched. And he is so funny and he sold out what, you know, the Dodger stadiums four nights in a row. And I think a large part was because you can't yeah. bring families and it's one thing that, you know, comics and it's not always bad, you, but you do have an edge. Some comics come from pretty rough backgrounds. And so they aren't the cleanest, but there are like tavern on 26 is a mic where it's not always clean, but you can get some kind of more, I don't know, maybe more family oriented and, I've always dreamed of trying to do a, I don't know, a special one time or to, of just clean stuff because it does 
open up way more opportunities for you in, in comedy. Yeah, it definitely does. There's a lot more opportunities out there and, uh, you can make good money with it, uh, as well. I, I certainly don't want, I know a lot of people go down the clean route to make more money and, you know, I guess for lack of a better term, sell out in that manner. I don't teach their own. If people want to do that, it doesn't bother me, but I very much want to stay grounded in trying to be as funny as possible and not having people say, Oh, Ben's a clean comedian. He does well in, in rooms of older folks or people who like clean stuff, but <laughs> yeah. not as well. I want to do equally as well in the city with young, young people as I do in the suburbs or at shows where they're looking for cleaner stuff. And I've noticed, and it's been a learning curve where uh, doing some of my first shows that did fairly well in the suburbs with cleaner stuff. And I was like, Oh, this, I, I feel like I have a nugget of um, just a better understanding of this stuff can work in different areas. But a lot of that stuff early on that I was doing clean, it was kind of just working in scenarios where they wanted clean. So now I've been working very hard to have it work for both. Um, and it can be tough, you know, if you're in a room with 24 year old drunk, just out of college people in Denver and you're like, I like to read books, <laughs> you know, they're like get this guy off stage. <laughs> you have to, you have to find an angle and you I've really had to work at trying to honestly, it's just been trial and error. It's just a lot of failing, a lot out going out there and going, all right, that's just not good enough. And just keep doing that until you find something that, that hits for both the young kids and the old folks and everybody in between. Uh, I think I heard Jeff Stonic sometimes has jokes like that, where he'll have a dirt, like a dirty version, then a clean version. And it is, so hard to do that it is a fun i mean being clean i think you you mentioned that it can seen a sell out but i think it, it it's a challenge it's super hard to take okay how can i make this universal especially so myself most of my comedy is based on dealing with a severe mental illness which usually isn't very pg it's usually even if it is clean it's like dark stuff and it's been a problem because a lot of times as you know you can bum people out if you're talking about you know something dark and that is the thing. We all stumble around trying to figure out how to be funny. It's one thing that seems so natural and there's no path to it. And it's so difficult. Yeah. And I think that's part of the trial and error. I mean, it's, it's hard because you're right. There's certain subjects that are darker than others. But with that said, there's, there's always an angle for everything that you can find that, that makes it more palatable and more relatable and less harsh for audiences, especially if they're looking for something cleaner. I mean, for myself, um, I started off just failing so much with, I mean, I haven't done it so much lately and I don't have it fully formed out, but earlier on I had a, a chunk of jokes related to, to going through Lyme disease uh, a decade plus ago. And same as what you're mentioning, maybe not quite on that level, but you know, a lot of it's like dark, depressing, anxiety, panic, just a bunch of stuff that's like, it was a dark time. And as I was trying to figure it out, you know, yeah, I was definitely coming off and people were like, <laughs> we kind of just feel bad for you. This isn't funny. And uh, that's what a lot of jokes start out with or topics where you try to attack it and you just take that feedback from the audience and go, all right, attacking that from that direction did not seem to work. How can I get in here um, in a way that, doesn't lose the attention and doesn't make people upset or scared or anxious or all just above. sad. And like, like I'm, I'm here at a bar. I'm trying to enjoy my Tuesday night. I don't want to think about what could be hard because comedy is an emotional thing. And sometimes you go, I'm sure you've come up with bits where there's so much emotion and you just come off as angry. Yeah. I mean, recently I've uh, been working on a story about accidentally uh, clogging a, a toilet at a church camp when I was in high school. <laughs> And, uh, I mean, it, I went through multiple variations. It was a multiple month process of kind of working it out and kind of getting it to the point where it's at now, where I feel pretty, pretty happy with it. And I've excited. seen it. Yeah. That's super. Uh, I mentioned, that. but it was, it, I mean, now I just go into it and I approach the subject as this is one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. Whereas I initially started, um, and kind of went into, I guess to, to keep it clean, the, the poop humor too quickly, <laughs> And uh, I think that just turned people off. I mean, I, you know, had multiple sets where I could tell I kind of went into the story and it's like, oh, 
I'm getting some people going literally exactly what I said. Oh, I don't want, I don't want that reaction for the story. That's what basically happened to me on kill Tony when I ate shit. Cause I came in, I was tired that night and I came on set with all the energy trying to force this very dark topic, like this very, you know, gross joke. And people were like, eh. and I don't know. Have you ever noticed that I've noticed sometimes if you slow down the bit and you almost kind of, Louis C.K. said, like, you kind of lead them. You're like, okay, a little bit here, a little further, a little further. I did that same bit almost word for word, but I slowed it down. And it, like, it got an audience that was kind of little 50, you know, in their 50s that would traditionally probably been like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Slow, yeah, slowing it down is is a huge thing that most people would probably benefit from. I know I've gone through periods where I've had to tell myself, just take a breath and slow down as comedians. You know, we need the laugh. Like if we're not getting a laugh quickly in our heads, we're going, uh Oh, you know, you start spiraling and go, this is, this is not going good. But, um, I think a lot of times that we start talking quicker, like you mentioned, not having much sleep, not feeling well, I've had sets where I'm not feeling great. And so then you're not, I guess for lack of a longer description you're not mentally strong enough to wait for the laugh you need that laugh quicker because you're not feeling mentally balanced or you're just not feeling great so you feel less you still feel more self-conscious uh, so then it's easier to go quicker to try to get to the punchline. but it works kind of the opposite because the crowd looks at you and goes this isn't funny you are talking a mile a minute this is weird that that's perfect i think ron white said if you're doing really well slow down. And if you're not doing well, slow down. Yeah. Yeah. I think slowing down would benefit a lot of people. And also too, as, as you mentioned, um, sometimes it's good to have, like, if you're going, whether you're talking quickly or talking slowly, if it's a subject that, you know, especially if you've done it before and you're like, sometimes this, uh, makes people uncomfortable. Well, when you're doing something uncomfortable or weird or, you know, a lot of different things that's building tension in the crowd. And as like a, it'd probably be good to think of like saver lines. Like if it's not getting what you need, basically just acknowledging at a certain point that you're aware that the audience is seeing you acting in a certain way to cut the tension and maybe get them like on board. Like, Oh, he's aware (laughs) that he's stuck going very quickly (laughs) getting laughs. Yeah. So having, having those uh, are generally a good way to, try to get the audience back on board. Uh, here's a question. One, uh, what is one thing about comedy that you wish people who don't do it knew? Well, I'd say a lot of people that don't do comedy just don't know. And it makes sense. I didn't know this until I went into it. They don't know everything that goes into, uh, preparing, putting, creating jokes, rehearsing those jokes, getting comfortable at mics, at shows, at bigger shows, at shows where they're being filmed, bigger moments, just all the behind the scenes stuff that has to go into it in order to, you know, even 10 minutes, 10 minutes, you can spend a couple of years putting together uh, 10 minutes that you're happy with where, um, you know, maybe you go do a bar show where nobody's really listening. You have a colleague come out and watch you and, and they go, man, you stink. And you go, ah, you just don't know the behind the scenes. Like, this isn't a good setting for comedy. I've worked very hard on these jokes. These would maybe work better and another thing. But that's, that's, uh, I don't blame people for that. I didn't know it going into it, but that's definitely something I think a lot of people aren't aware of all the work behind the scenes that goes into it. I think that is absolutely one thing I talk about a ton. And it's weird. Our art form's kind of unique like that because most people, when they hear musicians, assume that, oh, they had to work really hard to get that good. But with comedy, I don't know if it, it's probably just ignorance of, of what it does. Because like you said, I think I have I have 10 minutes that are solid and I've been doing it for almost three years that I'm proud of. And that can be really... It can be infuriating to think, oh, God, I've only have 10 minutes and I've on this for two years, but it's pretty par for the course. 95% of what the jokes you write don't work. Yeah, and as you do it for longer, you get better and your 
understanding and uh, metric for a, a good joke continues to go up. So, I mean, there's the, when I was two or three years in my, my hot 15, none of those jokes I do anymore. I mean, they're no longer part of, they're no longer in the set list. So you're constantly growing and evolving. And as you do that, you know, you have these jokes that are up here. And then as jokes are further down here, you have to be self-critical and, and, and it's not that hard to be self-critical when you do both of those in a set and one gets really good laughs and the other gets little to no laughs. You go, okay, that's no longer good enough. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's just a continuous uh, growth process where you're constantly, you know, it's tough to work for a long time on these jokes and then shed them, but that's just part of the, I guess, evolution when you're doing comedy. And some jokes you just can't let go, you know, you just, cause it was the one joke you had that got laughs early on and you, you don't want to admit that it's, it's, it's like an old athlete, you know? <laughs> yeah. Don't want to retire. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, but the great thing too is, uh, you never fully shit. Like you may put them on the back burner, but a lot of what I do, probably half of what I'm doing now, I'll write all the time, but I'm also going back and trying to pull from old things and trying to find little nuggets to connect to maybe a new bit I'm working on, or you just look at it from a different angle going into an old joke. Um, I know a lot of old jokes that I have don't feel true to who I am. Um, and maybe it's just a slight change in there that uh, is all that's needed to make it actually work again. Like I have a, I have a joke about not being confrontational and, and running into somebody at the grocery store, like a, a teenager who asked me to um, buy them alcohol. And I was like too scared to tell him no. For, so for some reason, I just was like, I'm a cop. And then I go through that process. And um, what I used to do is I'd say, uh, basically like, I can't believe this kid thought I was a cop. I was holding like a six pack of Mike's hard lemonade. And then as a tag, I would say, and I was also wearing a hat that said AP calculus, which it would get a chuckle, but that part is not true. Um, I was just trying to come up. I mean, everything was true except for the it's a joke. AP. Yeah. <laughs> I was just trying to tag it and adding a, a white lie in there, but saying a hat that said AP calculus, I think people knew and I knew it's like that didn't happen. I think it took people out of it. It's kind of like, it's not even worth the lie. So I've changed it since to just be like a more realistic um, tag saying just like I had a bottle of Pedialyte. It's not hilarious, but it's also not taking people out of the joke. And I think a lot of early jokes I did especially would have little white lies in there that would make people just um, take them out of the trance of the joke. I mean, a huge part of it is connecting with the audience and keeping that connection uh and is you know I feel like some goofy things you say or whatever sometimes people just go ah that's not true you're weird I don't want to <laughs> laugh anymore. Well, and that's the hard part because a lot of jokes have those white lies like a dial. I say like where's here's reality's at zero. Sometimes you can turn it to two or three, and it, it's not it's not changing it, but there's a point at which the audience can tell you're lying, and it is so interesting how the audience just knows. But then when you're not – like one thing I've done recently sometimes when I'm not doing as well but I'm telling a joke, I'll end with like you think I'm lying when it's like something that actually did happen. And it does yeah. relieve that tension. They're like, oh, he's not lying. Yeah. And well, there's definitely that's, – that's an element too. I know so many people who have stories that are true and are unbelievable. They're like, dude, this is crazy. And they say them and in my mind, I'm like, they're just lying. I'm out of this bit immediately. And then I talk to them afterwards and they're like, oh, no, that happened. And I've said, man, that is hilarious. I feel like you need to like make the audience know for sure, though. Like this is all true. Stay on board with me here. Yeah, that was that my, one of my best, probably my best closing joke about uh, a mishap during um, during a Christmas event when I took too many mushrooms. It was cool because it was really hard on my family. And then last time I was at Comedy Works, I wasn't it's, sure it's, where you were going with that. You're like. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Christmas no. event. Yeah, Christmas <laughs> event. And it was cool because my parents and my family who were part of the, the joke and, and went through it and really 
you know, stuck their neck out for me, got to hear the joke. And my brother was in the audience and my brother was dying laughing. And he, he told me that he got to tense, you know, next to someone. And he's like, that was me. I was, I was part of it. And it is so, so I'm, I'm going to ask you about how you got into comedy. But one thing I, I really enjoyed about comedy coming from computer science and mathematics in computer science and mathematics, there's maybe two ways to do things, but there's always an order at which you do things. There's a book that has the order, what you're going to do it, how you're going to do it, the pathway to the answer. And I think coming from a field where that is so heavy, I really liked comedy where it was kind of an open field that's double-edged sword because there's no path. But I think it's why when especially, you know, people just starting out, try to ask for advice. You can give, you know, a couple things like move the mic stand out of the way, a couple tips, but past that, it's just figure it out for yourself. So why, like I told you, what got you to go out to do open mics? Was it just a love for comedy? You finally just go did it. Was there a story? Yeah. I mean, I think like a lot of people I grew up, um, I mean, back to high school, I, I wanted to do comedy. Um, I grown up in kind of a, a strict household. I was the black sheep out of my family. I had three siblings. They were all kind of uh, a lot better with structure and taking direction from my parents and working hard at school. And I was very ADD and I just wanted, you know, my mind was going a mile a minute. I wanted to get attention. I wanted to, to try to be funny. And it's funny. A lot of people, they're like, yeah, I was the funny part. I wanted to be funny. I would try to be funny. I would act out. A lot of people didn't like it. It was not well received by my classmates. It was not well received by uh, my family. It was shut down. So it was kind of suppressed and I wanted to get this attention, but I never was. So similar to what you said earlier when you said you did your first open mic and you're like, oh, this is it. That's how I felt too. I felt like, oh, this is the outlet I've been looking for to get this creative energy or whether you want to call it creative, whether you want to call it ADD mental illness, whatever, to get this out of me. Uh, this is the perfect format for that. So I grew up in a small area, didn't have any uh, comedy open mics or anything around. Um, I remember in college watching kind of in high school, I think the blue collar comedy tour saw that that was, you know, exciting for the time in college that really opened my eyes to a lot of the comedy central um, specials. And, and I remember watching Dimitri Martin, uh, one of his specials he had in like 2006, 2007, um, Lucy K a couple years after that, I think it's 2008 special what blew my mind. Uh, Dane cook was a huge, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily influence, but a huge comedian that I listened to, um, that I enjoyed, especially during college years. And then, uh, I, I remember in college, my freshman year, I got, uh, well, my freshman year, I was 21 years old, mom. Uh, I wasn't, but I was for the sake of the story, uh, very drunk. And I did, I got a bunch of people together in a dorm room and I had typed out like single space, a full computer page or a, page, a computer paper of jokes. And uh, I performed them to maybe 15 college kids, including the RA and the RD, which I remember the RA, she was cool, but I was very drunk. And the uh, RA is like, I'm going to call the RD down. And I was like, am I going to get in trouble? <laughs> I was like, yeah, fortunately I didn't, but honestly I bombed, the jokes were going so poorly. I thought that I was going to get in trouble. I was like, this is going so badly. I'm going to get written up for drinking. Um, uh, but then after college, I, I, I moved to Northern Virginia, which is a more populated Nova. area. My brother Nova. from Nova. Yeah. Fairfax represent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I was there for a couple of years, then moved abroad for a year. Then when I came back uh, and moved to Denver, it was the first time I'd been in, uh, because in Nova, I was in the suburbs. I wasn't in the actual city. But Denver was the first time I realized, like, oh, I'm around open mics that are everywhere. Um, and I remember just watching a bunch of comedy on YouTube. I was new to the city. And I, coming coming off living abroad for a year, I was like, dude, you bombed every day trying to just say hello to people in a different language. Like, what's the worst that can happen? You go up and you bomb in English, whatever. Uh so then, yeah, I went and did my first open mic at uh, what used to be Voodoo. Now it's Rise Comedy. And uh, yeah, it just pretty much every night since then. That's 
Awesome. I remember when I was in sixth grade, I did this. It was it was for actually a, a assignment, but I did a skit of what it was like for Vikings to meet native people. And I did the whole skit and it destroyed in this one class and it destroyed and it, it went it's so well. And I was on this high and I'm like, let me do it again. And I did it again. And I learned that jokes don't work twice because I remember the whole class was right before school got out. We we're all in sixth grade and I ate shit. I walked out like, oh, like you just been raped, you know, it's just, the worst. I... It sucks your soul out. Yeah. No, I love don't... it. I don't remember. I'm sure I had some because I was obviously chasing that in like middle school, high school. Um, but the only memory I have of like my family laughing at me in like a family setting, because again, usually it was like me acting out and my mom and dad and even my siblings just being like, oh, God, shut up, Ben. Uh, and look, Where I love are my family. You? Where are you sibling wise? Second sibling out of four. Okay, so you're kind of a middle child. That's 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 a, yeah, I get that. Yeah, um, but yeah, love my family. They're great. They're nothing against them, but uh, didn't didn't get the uh, laughs that I wanted growing up. And I, I remember one time I was at my sister's college graduation uh, in the car. It was me, everybody but my oldest sister. And I said something. I was joking around about our local where we grew up, the movie theater. It was a dollar theater, and they sold pickles as like one of the snacks, like dill pickles. And I just was going on this rant about like, who the heck eats pickles at the movie? And that got a huge pop out of my whole family. And I remember that, that's the only, legitimately the only memory I have of like getting my entire family to laugh, which is so funny. You're like, oh man, I've been working very hard on jokes for the last five years. Got my family to laugh one time at me in my <laughs> 35 years of existence. God, that is, it is it's so Starting comedy, you know, I'm I'm three year, about three years in. You're what, six? Five or six? Five. 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 Yeah. There is a point. It's interesting to see people come into the scene who are your – like have the same dreams but are just a couple years behind you even though they're about your same age and to watch them eat shit. And, it's, and, it, and you could save them but you don't. And I think it's part of the, the process that you really have to earn your stripes in comedy. And it's not just, oh, having good jokes. It's presenting. It's doing it. It's the one form of art which is really hard to practice. I mean, you can write and stuff. But even if you write all the best jokes, if you don't know how to present them on stage. And that's the the beautiful thing because bombings, as someone who bombed on – like I went down to Austin. I was going to like, I'm going to go down there. I'm going to get the mothership. I'm going to be on all these clubs. And I get this one night after working too hard and I get on Kill Tony and I eat shit and it was so bad. And one thing about bombings is they never not suck. It's always a bad memory. But if you can – because I spent the whole next day thinking about it, I learned more from that than I'd learned from probably two and a half years doing comedy because I went in there with expectation of getting on stage. Oh, I'm going to get secret show. They're going to love me. Mother, you know what? Instead of saying, you know, I'm going to go on stage, I'm just going to do my best. And anytime from when I'm on comedy works, I just say, and I'm nervous and freaking out, just do your best because you can't control the outcome of how it's going to happen. You really can't, but you can do your best. And if you're just focused on what you're going to get, you're not going to be in the moment doing your best. Yeah. I mean, it's such a cliche thing to say, but you're right. It's uh, you learn so much from bombing. You have to bomb. You have to fail in order to grow. If you just do well, I mean, honestly, I say this all the time. I, I feel, uh, you know, it's easy to look at, at other people who are getting things quicker than you um, and kind of be like, oh, I want that. You know, it's natural. Um, I try not to, to especially at this point, um, try not to sit in the bitterness because that does no good at all. But I also very much appreciate the fact that I haven't gotten things quickly as some others have. Because if you get things quickly and it's embedded in your head, oh, where you're at is good enough what you're doing is good enough. And especially in the beginning. So then you go, Oh, I'm just funny. And I've figured it out. Then you, I mean, not everybody, but I think for most people, you stop working, you stop having to work that hard at it. And I feel like not having gotten, um, and look, I've been very fortunate to, to, to be where I'm at and I'm getting plenty of things that are exciting that I'm, I'm very grateful for. 
But uh, I think everybody, you know, if you're striving to be as good as possible, there's certain things that you want to be a part of and maybe you're not um, or haven't been invited or part of it yet. Uh, and I think that's important to have that because then you work even harder to get better and go, look, I wasn't noticed. I, I guess I better get better. And it's another cliche thing to say, but people say all the time, uh, you just have to be undeniable. If you are undeniable, then you won't be overlooked. That's, I heard something from when I was in Austin, a comedian who'd been six years in and he'd kind of done the in and out thing a couple times. And he said one thing to me at open mic, he said, do not, because everyone, like for me, I've actually never done a full 10 minutes. I've tended to just do open mics because I've moved around a lot. And I used to, you know, just wanting that, wanting that, wanting that. But this guy said, dude, if you get on shows, even if you're getting booked multiple times, usually that is maybe a couple months and or, you know, maybe even if it's six months, we were constantly getting booked. Eventually you come back down and he had fallen off when you're not getting booked and you just have to go to open mics because you see it a ton in Austin because there's so many shows. People who get booked on shows then don't want to go to open mics and then they fall way off. Mm -hmm. And it sent me the idea where, where if I just keep on going and getting better, like you said, becoming undeniable, becoming so skillful, people are eventually going to invite you to those things. And you want to think that you're special, you're talented, and that you deserve that. And maybe you do, but you know, not yet. And going out and working harder, well, maybe it may not get you what exactly what you want right away, <laughs> but it's better than doing nothing. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, that's another reason why a lot of people start running their own shows. I did the same thing. Um, I think that's kind of an important, somewhat necessary step in the beginning. You go, look, I've developed a 10 minutes. I want to do this at shows. If people aren't putting me on their shows, then I'll go create spots for myself. Um, and yeah, at the end of the day, whether it's shows or mics, as long as you're going out there and trying to have fun with it, if that's what's fun to you, which it is for almost all of us that are doing it. Some people, it's easy to get to a point maybe where you forget you're supposed to ha have fun and have to reset <laughs> um, and, and start going out with less pressure, like you said, and stop being like this. Every set means it's such a big moment of pressure. It's like, no, let's just have fun. What happens, happens. I've practiced this a lot. And you know what? If it goes poorly, then I'll learn from it and do better. But I'm not going to I'm not going to go into the set thinking, this is going to go poorly. This is going to go poorly. I'm going to do terrible. It's just like, go have fun. If it goes off the rails, then learn from it and try to have a better set next time. I do think, so I've never, I don't know about you, I've never been attracted to acting, which for a long time was kind of coupled with comedy. And I never liked it because I felt comedy forces you to be humble. It's really hard to be super, super arrogant all the time in comedy because you're just going to make fun of really no matter who you are um and i it's it's a great equalizer i love that it takes people off their high horse i think that's really important um cuz comedy there's not like leaders like you're a leader of com in the comedy i mean yeah there are maybe some be people who run shows and are but it's not this kind of it's serious and you everyone wants to do well but it's also you have to have fun and if you're I think some people I've definitely been here they want the the outcome they don't know the process and the process is everything if you don't love the process which I, I do now um, then maybe you know it's not not something for you yeah no that's a good way to put it I mean with acting obviously the outcome is they can edit all the outtakes and all the bad stuff out and then here's the finished product you look professional a lot of actors, uh, you know, obviously on the higher end, especially, but the egos get inflated. Um, and with comedy, you can't, you're in front of hundreds of people say it's not going good. That's not getting edited out. Those people are like, this is in our memory. We, we see it, you know, we see it, this is going poorly and you get humbled. Yeah. And so I think you're right. Uh, obviously there's some high up standups who, uh, <laughs> have kind of left that, uh, field of thinking, I think, and, and probably could use some, some humbling, but for almost all comics, you're going to have off nights at some point. Um, some people a lot more often than others, but even at the top end, you're going to have an off night and, uh, yeah, nothing, nothing more humbling than 
you know, having a large group of people look at you and not enjoy what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love when new comics come up or new people interested in doing comedy and they'll ask about bombing. And I say, please don't ask about this because I think sometimes they, everyone's so scared of it and they want it to not suck. And it's like, no, it always sucks. There's never been a comedian who was like, I bombed. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> that, no, that's, it's that's just, never happened. The best you can do. I mean, the best you can do is, and I've told other people, this is, um, to just try to bomb on your own terms. And what I mean by that is if it's a bad room, if people don't care, if there's no winning them over, at least bomb feeling in the moment and comfortable in yourself. With that said, that's more of just like an open mic thing. I don't, I don't consider it a bomb if I feel comfortable <laughs> inside. Like if the reaction is bad, and it's like, oh, nobody cares. But I'm like having good up here. I'm not getting any laughs. I don't consider that a bomb. I say that in jest with like open mics to, to especially newer people to just be like, hey, look, a lot of open mics, you're not going to get the attention uh, from people you want. A lot of people are going to be talking, not paying attention. Maybe nobody's in the room. Just go up there and bomb on your own terms and just go up there and do what you came to do and just try to have fun with it. But yeah, like if you're doing that at a show, a true bomb in my mind is not when you're feeling comfortable in the moment it's when you've unraveled from the inside and you've lost control and uh yeah we all know that feeling it's not a good one and that's so true one thing so i've i've always been a pretty good storyteller and recently a comic said that after a mic and i've been trying to put stories in mics which can be tough because mics tend to want this but one thing i've noticed when i'm telling these stories is often there may not be a ton of laughs but it's not like I'm bombing. People are listening, which is different because that is a good space to go and explore because what you, the audience is saying is what you're saying is not necessarily funny, but it's not like we're not listening to you. We're still listening. And I think someone who probably really embodied that way was um, Bill Hicks, who really got good at just engaging the audience. And then you know you obviously want to turn up the funny when you can, but it is uh, – and even or even if you're like sometimes I've I'm having fun on stage like I'm laughing at my own jokes and then it's not a bomb. I think that's another another amazing way to put it. One yeah. No, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say with the story stuff, you're right. It's one important piece of the puzzle is retaining people's attention. Um, and you're right at open mics especially, people's attention spans are a lot lower, um, and stories a lot of times don't go well. What I've learned just at, over the years, because uh, I came into comedy and, and naturally who I am as a person, the comedians I enjoy, a lot more storytelling based. Um, I tried that in the very beginning, realized very quickly, nobody cares about me and my stories. But now I'm getting to the point where I've developed the skill set to, to be able to write jokes and to kind of be able to put them in stories. And I've learned that you can get laughs at mics with stories. Uh, you just have to have, there's a lot of skill set um, things you have to have. One is getting people's attention. So presenting it in a way that makes people go, I want to hear this out. Obviously, the performance side of things where you're comfortable on stage and you're not, you know, in the beginning, we're all kind of like not there uh, as far as delivering stuff with confidence. So if you don't have that, that taps people out. And then kind of the third thing and one of the most important things as well is lining these stories with jokes. I know Bill Hicks, some of these people, they have like long winded stuff, uh, which there's a time and place for that. Uh, but also, especially at our level, and especially if you're doing shorter sets, you got to have um, a lot of punchlines. And that's, that's very difficult, especially for like an organic story to try to like squeeze in stuff that doesn't feel organic. It's a, you got to find that middle ground of uh, a lot of punchlines in an organic story that uh, keeps people laughing throughout. And, I think a, a king of that is someone like Gabriel Iglesias. If you listen to – he basically just tells stories, but what people engage is he does have those punchlines in the stories. Um, I think that's so it, – it's it's tough to get. And one thing I've noticed for stories is if you're telling a story that is a about a drunk night or a night where you did a bunch of drugs with your friends, no one gives a shit. Until you're at that level, you can tell that story. What people do resonate with are, I have a joke about, 
I got scammed out of a thousand dollars subleasing my apartment. And, or I have a, a story about falling in love at 20. And they're stories that connect regardless of that individual. And those stories tend to do better in those mics, especially which I've, I've sprinkled in the punchlines, which allows people to, to latch on. But it is, um, you know, it's, it, it is a process. One thing I wanted to shift here that I, we talked, I think, on Monday at, about, which is comedians taking care of themselves. I've had uh, bipolar, and luckily I was put at a psychiatrist at four years old. Very, very, like that's, that's a true story. And I've had the same psychiatrist for 21, going on 22 years now. And I really learned how to take care of myself. And comedy, we're a late night activity you want to go out stay out late and when you have your friends who are going out and working hard you want to be there to show that you're part of the community and you're working just as hard as them and when i entered comedy i knew that lat you know cutting me on sleep was like not even close to negotiable because it can really quickly land me in the mental hospital and it's one thing when i was talking to you about it and i don't know how much you want to share with what, what what's happened with you about it is trying to figure out that balance of, okay, I'm pushing myself, I'm working hard, I'm writing, I'm committing myself to this, but I'm also leaving other areas of my life open so that I have other things to talk about and have other things in my life that can then in some way contribute to comedy. Yeah. I mean, I think like, just like you said, on Monday, we talked about it, uh, for me, but I think for everybody, it's, it's very important to take care of yourself. And, uh, it's hard to be funny when you feel like crap and you're not taking care of yourself. So uh, a lot of people, you see them, they go out. And I think for myself included, a lot of people in your first year, you're just running on like this extra energy level because it's all, everything's new and you're hanging out with your friends every night and you're getting laughs for the first time and maybe you're doing a show every once in a while. It's just all so exciting. You're It's giving you a boost of energy. But coming on, you know, my sixth year of comedy and, and if you're trying to do this long-term or as a full-time job, you just can't do 500 mics a year every year and not sleep. And also, you know, maybe if you live at your parents' house and don't have to pay bills, then good for you. You can Bye. do that. But most of us aren't in that situation. And if, if, uh, if you do have a job and if you have to be a responsible adult, then it's important to, to try to take care of yourself. And I've gone through periods, like I mentioned to you on, on Monday, where I'll slip up on diet and sleep and lack of exercise, and I can feel it. And then in turn, not only in my normal day life at work, but when I get on stage, I feel it. I don't feel charismatic. I feel low energy. I don't feel the connection with the crowd. Um, and at the end of the day, I want to be the best comic that I can. And in order to do that, I just need to be as healthy as I can. And obviously that's for comedy too, but also just in life. I want to feel as good as I can. And I'll keep this short, but just to give uh, take your time a, a bit of a story that I mentioned to you on Monday and why I feel it's even more important for me to, to stay healthy is back in 2010, 2010 to 2012, I, I went through a couple of year period of like very, very difficult um, health complications and problems with Lyme disease. And uh, it was, I mean, to keep it short, it was a nightmare. It was terrible. Depression, anxiety, panic attacks, going to doctor after doctor. Don't tell me I'm crazy. Trying different medications, not being able to work. Uh, just feeling like I was going to die for like two. I mean, I was I just know waiting. hunters who have Lyme disease. I want everyone to know Lyme disease is a fucking nightmare, as Ben is saying. Yeah, and, and when I had it, it was uh, it's a little bit more prevalent now. But when I had it, I mean... I was going to doctors. They're like, nah, it's not that you're crazy. Uh, not many people had it. I wasn't able to like, there weren't forums or groups that were readily available like they are today with Facebook group and just all this stuff. Now in 2010, you know, I was, I was going down a rabbit hole for a while on my thyroid. I thought I had like thyroid issues. So I was like hopping on these like weird forums with just like 60 year old ladies. <laughs> who were like, you know, and I'm like, yeah, me too. And they're like, who's this 22 year old weirdo? Uh, but ultimately, yeah, it's the Lyme disease and, and diet. How'd you get it? Uh, so I, growing up, I mean, in Virginia, I grew up, uh, my grandparents on a farm, grew up uh, around a lot of woods, was constantly outside running around. I mean, bitten by thousands of ticks. 
Well, that and so I don't know. Do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if it was one of those um, that laid dormant and then just kind of in 2010 um, really got me at a low point. I mean, in college, I was drinking a lot, really unhealthy. So maybe my immune system fell down. And then if it was in my body, it could have taken over at that point. But also I was bitten. And I think this is probably the tick that did it. I was at a music festival um, summer of 2010, got bitten by a tick. It uh, swole up some lymph nodes around my like groin area. And I thought it was a hernia. So I went to the doctor and he was like, oh no. Um, he goes, were you bitten by a tick recently? Cause that can do that. And that was that. I just wanted to make sure it wasn't a hernia. But then like two months, a month or two later, um, things really fell apart. So I'm assuming it's that, that one, but yeah, I was bitten by so many ticks. I couldn't even. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, specifically uh, pinpoint. So and the reason I asked is so in hunting out West here, especially in Colorado where there's altitude, usually I have to worry, but I know buddies of mine who've gone out East and they have to often tell people from the West to check for ticks. And they're like, what are you talking about? Cause they do. And it just fucks with Lyme disease is weird. It's not just like a physic. Oh, I feel bad. It's like, like you said, psychological, it is such a fucking, you know, plethora of nightmares to deal with. It, yeah, it's funny. I've, <laughs> I've tried to joke about it and I'm sure I will. I'm kind of saving it because it's such a dense topic that's, you know, near and dear in a terrible way, but to my heart, it's just very relevant to my uh, existence and my experience. But um, I don't want to, I want to make sure that I dig into it with a skill set um, that I'm starting to gain in comedy and not kind of like I used to do a, a chunk on it, but it was, it was very all over the place and not that great. And so if I'm going to tell the story about it, I want to make sure that I, I put it together in a, a little more cohesive way. But it's funny when I first had it happen, um, like the first night I remember truly understanding something was wrong. I was still living at my parents. I was, it was the summer after college and I, I couldn't get to sleep. And I, I had driven back my college girlfriend at the time, I drove back uh, an hour and a half from, from the college to my parents, and I remember just feeling off. And, you know, when you're drinking and stuff and hung out, you're like, maybe it's that, but I feel like off in a different way. But I, I wasn't fully in sync with like my brain and emotion and all that stuff. You kind of just, when you're a kid, a lot of times you just kind of like are oblivious to a lot of that stuff. And I got home, couldn't sleep, and I, I started to feel so off in a way that I'd never experienced before. I genuinely thought, and, and I say this with zero sarcasm, like this, I genuinely thought I'm either possessed by demons <laughs> or like aliens have taken me, like some sort of, it was such an out-of-body kind of experience. I, I was so scared. I went up and knocked on my parents' door. I was 22 years old. Hadn't done that for a decade plus I went up as an adult knocked on my parents door to be like, I'm something's wrong. And, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a nightmare from, from that day on for the next couple of years. I think they need to give it another names like other than Lyme's disease. Cause it sounds so just, Oh, it's like a disease of Lyme's like how bad can cute, that be? Yeah. disease? Yeah. It is so, um, so I, I've gotten feelings like that with um, when I first had my first mania kind of, and I mean, it's similar. Like I, cause your first, like even I knew about, but I, I was the luckiest person in the world. I, I'd known I'd read about it, but until I had my first mania, I had, I had no idea what hit me. I was so paranoid. I was trying to, I, I froze all my credit scores because it was, just, I was assuming someone's trying to steal all my information. People say that weed makes you paranoid. Bullshit, man. That's like nothing. It was so bad. And those feelings when you've never had them before and you can't you can't point to a part on your body. I don't know if you had like the signs, but when you can't point to a physical ailment, but you just feel wrong, there's always that thing with people where they're like, is he just lying to me? And usually yeah. you're not. Yeah. No, I mean, I went to doctor after doctor after doctor. Everybody told me it's in your head. You're fine. This and that. And after a year and a half of this, you know, I started being like, am I just ruined? 
but I, I truly, because I had lived 22 years of my life with a certain mental space and physical ability to overnight go to crazy town and be totally, I was like something had, you know, the doctors are like, maybe it's because your relationship is straight. Just trying to be like this. Maybe it's a subconscious thing. I'm like, dude, no way. I've like, I've dealt like a with bro doctor. Like, dude, maybe you just need to relax. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> dude, I've been stressed before. I've gone through, I, I know emotions that are normal. This is a very different thing. And you're right. It's, it's an irrational thing. And, and I feel so lucky and the silver lining of it, I don't feel lucky, but the silver lining of it that I do appreciate is that happened when I was 22. So going into adulthood, I had to go through some adversity that really helped propel me into adulthood to understand that health is important, understanding how my well-being is connected to the activities that I'm doing, sleep, exercise, my diet, um, and just understanding the importance of taking care of yourself. And, and I fell victim to, to not adhering to that uh, about six months ago. I was, you know, just doing comedy. It's easy to be out drinking, eating, not that great. And I got in a bad habit of that. And in June of last year, I hit kind of another point. It was the first time that I kind of hit a dark moment like that since 2010 to 12. This, uh, you mean 2023 June? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I, I was convinced that I had blood clots and that I was going to die. Like I, it sounds absurd to say it. I mean, it sounds like I'm saying a joke here, but I was mentally in a place that was so weird that I was sitting over on my couch and I, I think I felt like a little tingle here and then a tingle later on my leg. And when you're in a bad mental place, I was just like, those are blood clots and they're circulating and I'm going to die. I, I remember unlocking my apartment door and standing close to the door thinking, I'm going to die. I need to open the door and at least fall out onto the ground so maybe somebody can help me because I'm home alone. Just insane stuff. Fortunately for me, though, having gone through, again, the Lyme stuff earlier on, 2010 to 2012, and, and just to make it clear, the Lyme is like a chronic thing, so the diet, eating poorly, I think just inflamed it up to where I was okay, that was my question. Again. So it wasn't actually resolved. It was just resolved by a lifestyle change and things that you constantly have to do to keep it at bay rather than just fix it. Yeah. So immediately I went into just very strict diet, sleeping, just health conscious on every front. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's one, it's frustrating. It's not something where you go, Oh, ate a salad tomorrow. Feel great. No, but I did. I got out of the blood clot mindset, you know, and started slowly, <laughs> getting better to now where, I mean, we're seven ish months later. Um, I'm feeling much better. I've, I've, uh, been super strict with my diet, exercise, uh, sleep schedule, and just feeling a lot better, more confident on stage and just as a person in general. I kind of had a similar situation with other things. I always had bipolar and it, and it got worse with the pandemic, like infinitely worse. And then I had issues with my pancreas from drinking and I wasn't, I mean, I have crazy nights, but I wasn't like a crazy drinker all the time. And I had to stop drinking because pancreatitis is some of the worst pain I've ever felt. And I'm not a wimp when it comes to pain at all. It, and it's awful. Your pancreas starts to digest itself. And I had to, I'll drink maybe once or, you know, I'll drink occasionally, maybe you know, two to three times a month. And it's usually just a drink or two. Um, but I had to stop because the pain was so bad. Um, and then I started to be healthy because I realized that physical and mental health are so intertwined and it's a huge thing about, and I'm not telling comedians what to do. I'm so glad, you know, we have people who want to go out and hammer, but taking care of yourself, especially lack of sleep. Like when people say I can go without four hours of sleep, there is a, a gene, a phenotype, I think is what they call it, who can go with that, but it's pretty rare. Most people need sleep and it's stuff that's what causes Alzheimer's. When you're young and 21, you can do it. I think I was forced upon it because kind of like you at a young age, a young 22, 23, had to start changing my diet and I just felt better. And I luckily grew up in martial arts. I already had some discipline and I just am anal about it. I eat almost perfect. Um, one, it saves a ton of money than eating out every time. And 
I have a rule. I have to be home at 11 when I go to open mics. And I mean, if it shows and you're doing later stuff, that's different because it's usually on weekends. But um, I get uh, comics give me shit like, why are you going home? And you do kind of have to be like, hey, you know, I got to spend time for myself. Physical and mental health is something so few people put time and effort into. And it can be hard because you want to don't you don't want to see him as a wimp. taking care of yourself is so important. Like last night after the mic, I was feeling like shit the whole time. I was like, when, and when you, you're healthy, you know, when you feel like shit. And yeah. sure enough, when I came home, I was, I, I broke out in fever, but I'm already starting to feel better at the second half of a day because I recover really quickly. Health is, I was, I'm still, and I, I'm unapologetically a fan of Joe Rogan. Um, and he really, he was a really good, example because he kind of said a lot of basic things he has a lot of conversations you know get sleep working out stuff everybody can start to do and should do i think most people don't know what it feels like to be healthy Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, the American diet is just all the the crappy options that are available. A lot of people uh, have never lived a moment of their life of, and and that's the thing too with diet. It's you can't eat healthy for a week and be like, I feel great. You have to if you're putting stuff in your body that's unhealthy and it's kind of damaging the inside of your body little by little, and kind of get has your immune system out of whack. And you do that for 25 years of your life. Well, yeah, it makes sense that you're not going to reverse that in a week or two. You have to, it takes a long time. Our bodies are very resilient. They can be reversed in a lot of um, scenarios, most scenarios, I would say. But yeah, it's a long-term lifestyle change that most people, unfortunately, um, aren't willing to, people would rather have fun in the moment and take pills or whatever to, to put band-aids on it. Um, and it's unfortunate, but look, that's USA, baby. Freedom. Do what you want. <laughs> well, you have to. I'm actually a big proponent because I was talking to comedians about this who a couple of them asked me about how do how do you how do you get this discipline? And one, I get it because I've built this up like my in martial arts from 11 years old. My master is from South Korea. Koreans are unbelievably disciplined. But I had to implement it. And I always I have like last night, I, I love I love getting stoned. And eating like fast food. And so I was like, okay, I'm not going to do that all the time, but I do it once a week. So I have, I eat nearly perfect most of the time. And I, and I allow myself those treats, especially when you're, I think it can be intimidating when people are trying to move from not at all to something. You have to do it in bits. Like I have a rule with myself because I like to smoke weed and, you know, I don't want to, just like anything, it can be too bad of you, too bad for you. So I have a rule where three or four days a week, I have to be sober. And I, I follow that rule pretty intensely. And then the nice thing is, is I like to enjoy life. I like a little drink here or there. I like to smoke a joint here. And when you do discipline yourself to, and you let yourself have those moments, those treats feel a thousand times better. They feel amazing. You're like, oh my God, I really did earn this. And, but at the same time, it means you also the next day have to go back to being healthy, which cannot be the easiest thing for people. But I tell people, do it in steps. And if you're starting at zero, if you're doing nothing, can you go and take a five-minute walk every day? Something. Don't try to compare yourself to people you see online. That should be a maybe eventual goal. But you need to do these stair steps of little – and that's how you build discipline and that's how you also make it maintained over time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean for me, it, was, it wasn't even a question of like, oh, this is hard to do. I was in a position of such – low mental and physical state where it's like, I have to do this. Um, so I guess you could call that making it easier because I was so depressed and in a bad place. You just have to do it. But, but also at this age, after having that adversity and going through that, it is one of those things where, you know, you, you hear people talk about it, whether it's health, whether it's, Hey, I want to move. I want to find a different job. I want to start comedy. I mean, anything at a certain point, um, you can talk about it all day, but it's like, do you want to do it or do you not want to do it? Do you want to be healthier? Then you need to take steps to be healthier. Do you want to find another job? Then you need exactly. to, and, and we've all gone through this. I've done it. I'm guilty of it as well, where you, you know, oh, I want to do this. I want to do this. And then after six months of complaining to your friends and family about a job you don't like, you know, at a certain point, you get to look in the mirror and go, you find another job, buddy. 
I, there's only so many more times my parents are going to look me in the eye and go, yeah, that's sorry to hear that. It's like change your situation or, um, or learn to live in this situation. It is, it is, uh, a lot easier to bitch about things than actually have action towards doing them. Yeah. And I've been guilty of that. I mean, there's been plenty Everyone of jobs that I've had where I, I mean, I had to catch myself and be like, dude, every, every single day I'm just complaining to everybody I see, like, this is not health. This is a toxic environment that I'm in and that I'm also pushing on others just for no reason. Yeah. Well, um, we can start to wrap it up here. Is there um, anything, I mean, is any shows you wish to announce? I don't have the biggest audience, but you know, I want to give you a fair, if there are any projects you're working on, anything you're doing coming up that you want to mention. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm doing, when, when does this come out? Uh, this will probably come out before like, like Monday around. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm doing the comedy fort next weekend, the 19th and 20th, uh, be my first weekend there. I'm excited for that. Uh, Chloe Radcliffe, I think is headlining. It's in Fort Collins, um, isn't it? Up in Fort Collins. Yeah. yeah. Doing, uh, uncorked on Wednesday. I think the 17th, uh, don't tell show on the 25th. And then, uh, yeah, you, you can check out, if you go to Ben Daily Comedy um, Instagram in my bio, there's a link to my link tree if anybody is interested in checking out shows. But if not, I'll see, I'll see you guys at some mics. I'll be out there working <laughs> through some new crappy jokes. Heck yeah. Well, Ben, I had so much fun talking to you today. I'll probably have you back here. You've been a pleasure. You're, you're a funny guy. And I, uh, I look forward to seeing you, uh, seeing you again sometime. Um, I think we're yeah. going to sign this off. Sounds Bye, good. Thanks everybody. for having me, man. I appreciate it.